to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta von Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm welcoming Dr. Nan Wise, who is a cognitive neuroscientist, professor, licensed psychotherapist, certified sex therapist, and board-certified clinical hypnotherapist with three decades of experience. After almost 20 years in clinical practice as a sex therapist, she became driven by an intense desire to understand how the brain operates to create moods and behaviors in relation to sex and other aspects of the human experience. Returning to academia in 2009 to pursue a PhD in cognitive neuroscience at Rutgers, Newark, she is now an associate research professor at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, Newark. She is the author of Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Purpose-Filled Life, and lives in West Orange, New Jersey. Today, we're going to be talking about a few different things related to neuroscience, pleasure, the brain, and the impacts of COVID stressors on how how our pleasure is doing in this crazy, uncertain time. So you have a book called Why Good Sex Matters. Um, would love to know like, how, how you define good sex. So for me, good sex is sex that feels good and is good for you, which I call healthy hedonism. So it's really sex that enhances your life and it feels good. It's good for you. It's good for the, the other person. I make that distinction so that we don't think about like, you have to have great sex, like that, you know, we have to strive towards something else. And I always like to remind my students in sexuality or clinical sexology that before we decide what good sex is, we should talk about what do we mean by sex? Because people have different meanings, you know, for some people, unless it's like an intercourse kind of thing with genitals and friction, it's not sex. For other people, it's anything that, you know, was remotely erotic, you know, is sex. So, but the reason why I wrote the book, Nicoletta, is that sex gives us a window into our relationship with pleasure and pleasure, our relationship with pleasure gives us a unique window into how well our emotions are working. Our emotional brain is wired in. In psychology, we don't deal with the core wired in emotions that we share with our animals, which is very distressing to me because these core wired in emotions really regulate a lot of how we feel and react. It's the embodied visceral kind of emotions. So we can be trying to steer ourselves out of a bad mood or out of you know bad habits or into a better sex life, trying to use the top of our minds. But if we're not dealing with how emotions affect our core visceral experience, we're not going to be effective. And the point that I make in this book is that pleasure is not a luxury. It's a necessity for the proper operation of our emotional systems. And there's many, many people before 
the the coronavirus challenge. People have been having less sex than previously. We've been in a sex recession. And more people have been anxious, depressed, stressed out, reporting negative or bad mental health, negative you know, symptoms and bad emotional health. And this anhedonia or the inability to experience pleasure is a sign like the canary in the coal mine that how we've been living isn't working so well. So pleasure is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And sexual pleasure in particular is very important. I was just on the Today Show right before the coronavirus, uh, interviewed by Marie Shriver to talk about why pleasure matters and why it's important for overall well-being. I'm sure I don't have to convince you. (laughs) I'm definitely convinced, and it's definitely a good thing to reiterate for our listeners. And obviously, you can go to the Today Show link, but since you're tuning into Sluts and Scholars, I would love to hear that from you today. But before we get to that, I I read some of the similar studies on, you know, how people are having less sex. And I'm wondering, do you think it's because we're expanding the definition of sex? No. No. I think it's because we're distracted. Tell me more. And I think the divided attention that we have, which is partially because there's so many choices for entertainment, it's also that people are spending a lot of time dividing their attention in something called continuous partial attention. We have the phone standing by, we're on a device, we're watching something on Netflix. And dividing attention up like that is actually creating more distress, more anxiety, more stress that I think is impacting people's ability to be in their bodies connected to another human being enough to actually have sex. Well, you mentioned these core emotions. What are the core emotions that you're talking about? Thank you for asking, because if I can communicate anything from my work is for us to really, as people, to be able to operate these systems better and as clinicians to help people learn how to operate these systems better. Well, I liked how you were describing them in terms of visceral body responses, because I think for all of us, you know, we have a body feeling and then we interpret it in our head as like, oh, I must be feeling this. So I would love to hear about these core emotions from like a a body perspective. Well, the basic seven systems that we share with animals, even chickens have them, but particularly mammals. The the one system that works with all of the other systems is what we tend to think of as the reward system. Okay. And I use those air quotes because it's not really about reward. It's more about learning or reinforcement. And that's driven by dopamine. That's what gets our attention. And the reason why things like continuous partial attention is so deleterious for us is that attention is being captured by our devices and split in so many directions that the dopamine signal gets corrupted and it no longer predicts the things that will really help us have satisfying pleasures. Mm. Dopamine gives you that bump up, but it's not satisfying. So that's a main issue that we're having is do- the dopamine signal is not working properly. So we're craving, craving more and more want, want, you know? So that 
seeking system is really designed to give us enthusiasm and exuberance to meet our other needs. That's what gets animals and people to explore so that we can hunt for food and we can find mates and we can find safety. And we So it's for motivation. Precisely. Bingo. It's the motivational system and it's being corrupted with how, you know, there's attention engineers that figure out how to capture attention like that. So you click, click, click. Is that why so many folks would be having some struggles with low libido with all the coronavirus stuff going on? Because you're so fucking distracted by everything. Like, how could you make space for this reward system? Yeah, the, 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 that system is really corrupted. And when the dopamine system kind of lowers down, it can't engage with powering the other system. So the uh, defensive systems, fear, we need to be afraid so that we avoid dangers, right? Rage, we need to protect ourselves, you know, in order to protect our resources. We all have those wired in systems. A system that's another kind of defensive system, which is called panic grief, is when we feel a kind of threat to our well-being because we're disconnected from a resource. Mm. So think about a little baby animal. You take it away from its mother. It's lunch for another animal. So it's life and death that the animal stays attached to the parent. And human beings, likewise, we need attachments. And so anything that threatens our attachments can create anxiety, depression. In fact, uh, Yak Pengsep, who is the guy who actually mapped out these systems, he died about three years ago. Fabulous man. I had the privilege of working with him. Oh, on wow. A Brilliant man. He's like going to be thought of as Darwin. You know, what happens with that panic system, panic grief system, depending on our particular sort of um, wiring, you know, our predisposition, that's the system that is when it is um, triggered can actually be the source of depression and in some cases panic attacks and anxiety. So that's a natural sort of, it's like kind of the dark side of connection. Mm -hmm. So then when we talk about the other systems, which are the affiliative systems that get us to connect, the other side, the bright side of the attachment system is the care system. And that's powered by our own opioids. Opioid is the term for any kind of opiate, whether it's a natural opiate or, you know, a synthetic, but we make our own opioids. And with and through connection, that's where we get those feel-good neuropeptides that create a sense of well-being that's satisfying. And what do we see happening to those feel-good chemicals when we're with somebody for a long time? Well, what happens is we habituate to the new relationship energy, which I talk about in my book. And um, so what, you know, when we first get together with people, there is this ramp up, you know, and during the initial attraction, people might call it falling in love or limerence or whatever it is, that there's these potent chemicals that get released that are like amphetamine mm -hmm. that get our attention. And we think about the partner, we're dreaming about the partner, it gets us all 
all like bumping up our spontaneous sexual desire where mm-hmm. we're feeling like jumping the person's bones all the time, whenever, anywhere. Yeah. But that also can have a dark side because when people are, let's say you're, you're in that new relationship energy and the person doesn't call you ruminate and obsess. Yeah. You're like, where, where's that other pack of drugs? <laughs> Exactly. So what happens is that that chemical process is a lot like what happens in the brain when people have OCD. Mm -hmm. So that's a great point that you notice that like that care system stays intact. We still have the caring, the warm, fuzzy caring, the less part, which leads us to the next um, affiliative system. Since you mentioned it is lust, the urge to merge, that gets way bumped up by new relationship energy. In fact, in my book, I talk about how people kind of, they misread the natural kind of return to baseline after they're together for like 18 months or two years or three years or whatever time that runs its course, they kind of see that loss of that spontaneous horniness for the person is like, oh, I'm not in love again. Yeah, I should leave. And I'm like, hello, sorry, that's less, that's not love. So back to the core system, we have care, you know, the affiliative ones, we have lust, which is that urge to merge, right? Then we have a very cool system called play. Now, in grown-ups, play is flattened. In kids, you don't have to get a, you know, teach a kid how to play. Kids learn. They explore. The seeking system empowers their play systems to learn about the world. That's how they learn to cooperate and to compete. And is that an inherent biological flattening, or is that a flattening due to culture of people needing to, like, that they shouldn't play as much, or they think they should be more goal-oriented? It's probably a function of both. So it becomes like a biopsychosocial. Exactly. Boy, I love that. Boy, you're smart. I love that whole question. And how you get it. Now, Thank you. Actually, my purpose of doing this interview was to be complimented. So I'm not just I, You deserve it. First of all, you ask great questions, obviously. You're giving me dopamine, Dr. Nan. Well, my pleasure. And you, you know what? It's great. But this is actually one of the things that's really great about Now, I know you're going to do this as an audio, but you and I are looking at each other. So we're having a very important two things that are really part of the connection system that you don't get from texting or social media is eye to eye. We're looking at each other and we're listening. So the the eye to eye face to face thing can happen virtually. It's not flesh to flesh. So we're missing that visceral channel of touch and you know, being close to somebody in terms of proximity. But what we can do to really improve our ability to connect and engage that care system is by actually looking at people, use our devices to actually look at another human being and listen. Through listening, there's actually this whole thing called the social vagus system that can help through listening, can calm the nervous system and foster feelings of connection. So when people are plugged into their phone side to side, 
side by side. They're not enlisting, they're not listening to each other and they're not looking at each other. So this is an important thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people, at least even in couples that and partnerships that I've been in is thinking that watching a movie together is bonding. And I think there's like some parts about it that are like you're maybe sharing in the same experience, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like quality time for a lot of folks. Well, if you are in the same room side by side watching a movie, that's a whole lot better than each of you being on your devices watching something else. Well, now that but now that we're stuck in this coronavirus physical distancing, how do you imagine this is going to impact some people with with all the stuff you're talking about and the, the need for pleasure as a a survival skill? Well, I think people have the opportunity to reboot themselves and to kind of really take a moment. Like I'm writing on my blog a lot of information and suggestions about how people can be very intentional using this time to reboot their habits because we can't do the same thing we ordinarily do. Yeah, we have to get creative. So by being intentional, if you are on your own and you're, you know, you're quarantined or just, you know, basically sheltering at home by yourself, you're going to need to be able to enlist things like FaceTime or Zoom or whatever you use to do that face-to-face ear-to-ear kind of conversation. And I also tell people when they're in the same space, living together, to be more intentional about not getting right onto their devices, not going right to the television. Take the first couple of minutes, half an hour when you wake up, to have a real conversation over a cup of coffee or tea What's on your mind? What's in your body? What's your emotional weather? We are going through a very challenging time, but you know it's also offering us an opportunity to be more intentional with connecting. Mm-hmm. So it's my hope, my fervent hope, that the coronavirus challenge may actually drive an uptick in our sexual behavior, where we're like not so distracted running around to fourteen different places. And remember, listeners, you don't need a partner to do that. So self-pleasure is great. (laughs) Well, that's it. Like prioritizing spending time, feeling the pleasures of being in our body. And if we can share it with other people that where it feels good and it's good for us, you know, to, to have sex with someone else. I think I covered with the seeking system is the one that empowers us to do everything. The defenses include fear, rage, and then the panic grief, the dark side of connection. So we've got, uh, I want to make sure I got everything. So we got seeking, fear, um, rage, panic grief. We have care, lust, and play. So I've got all seven. In this episode, we're talking about how important it is to stay connected and to find a physical, pleasurable outlet during this crazy time. But dating and sex has obviously been impacted by physical distancing. If you're missing a sexual partner and you don't currently have one in your distancing pod, there is no shame in finding some erotic intimacy through a paid service like My Girl Fund. It's also a great time to support sex workers since many can't do in-person work given the current state of things. Right now, you can join mygirlfund.com for free, and for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than five bucks when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S&S. 
My Girl Fund is a safe, private, and discreet adult community where you can virtually connect with women. There are no set prices for interactions and content, and it's all negotiated one-on-one. Right now, you can join mygirlfund.com for free, and for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than $5 when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S-A-N-D-S. That means you can get discounted credits and bonus interaction features for life when you go to mygirlfund.com slash S-A-N-D-S. Now back to the episode. Just a quick follow-up question about the the defensive ones. Um, in my therapy life, I've often heard anger or rage described as a secondary emotion. And for people who don't know what that means, it's basically like, I don't know, kind of that image of the the glacier and there's a lot of stuff underneath. So folks will say that like anger is usually um, something that people like turn to or use because there's another underlying emotion. And I'm curious what you think about that. It sounds like you think it's really primary. Well, yes, it is primary. So this is a great question to distinguish between the core visceral emotions and the souped up more, you know, infused with thoughts and beliefs and interpretations that are more at the top of the mind. So when we talk about rage, if you take a person and you block them being able to do what they want or need to do, they're going to get angry. Okay. That's if you um, hurt another person, they're going to get angry. It's a, it's a natural um reaction to a stepping on somebody's toes, blocking their actions. So kids get angry when you stop them from doing what they want to do. Yeah, right? How do you get a kid mad? Tell them no. They can't do what they want to do and they get pissed. Mm-hmm. So animals and people will react with that visceral enraged kind of or rage experience when they're in that position where they're blocked from, kept from a resource, or in some way stepped upon. Mm -hmm. You can do that with animals by putting a, for example, a, you can, you take a, a male and female, like, you know, rat together, and you put another male in, the male gets angry that there's another male in there, it gets enraged, right? So that's core. At the top of the head where you're talking about the secondary, it's just more infused. I might be mad at you because I interpret something you say and do as disrespectful. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole like really cognitive idea about how you should be and you weren't that way or you shouldn't have been and you were. It's a much more heady kind of interpretation. Whereas like I have a 10 month old, 11 month old grandson, you take a toy away from him and he gets angry. Mm -hmm. You don't have to teach kids to get angry. You also don't have to teach kids to be afraid. We are wired to be afraid of things that hurt us. Like pain. We get afraid of pain. We'll also lash out in anger when we have pain. These are built into the organism as basically the kind of hardware that we come with. So you're talking about these things that are built in, you know, that are that are innate, that are linked to our survival. And I think also in your book, you mentioned that something that we all need to do in being able to experience pleasure is to manage these core emotions. And so how do these get miswired due to 
you know, attachment ruptures or trauma or, you know, ways that, because obviously they don't, they don't work well for some people. Right. Well, you know, I think the way that you can start with it is just think about, you know, we're born and we all have different temperaments. Mm -hmm. Some kids are more um, reactive than others. Some are harder to soothe. So we have that kind of differences in how much our defensive systems might be kind of how easy they go online mm-hmm. or how, how anxious we are by nature. And then you have early childhood experiences that can either dial that up, make you more anxious or like soothe you, you know, kind of it shapes the tonality of our defenses. I'm thinking of like a fear response where sometimes it's hard to tell if you are not doing something because it's a fear that you should be listened to that's a protective thing, or if it's a fear based on like a past shitty experience or anxiety. Well, the point that you raised there, Nicoletta, goes to a really great other, whole big other piece of this is understanding the three layers of our mind. So the bottom mind is what we're talking about, these core visceral emotions. The top of the mind is what we experience on an everyday basis when we're thinking, planning, you know, trying to reason. What you're talking about in terms of experiences is what's really we call the mid-level mind, and that's the territory of learning, old conditioning, old experiences, all of that. And all it takes is one bad experience, like one bad sexual experience, one bad traumatic experience of any kind to really let like leave a lasting kind of feeling that may not even be something you're not even thinking about Mm -hmm. the experience that you had, but it's like that automatic imprinting. So I think that when we understand how the mind works, then we can have the question, am I reacting to the situation because there's really something to be afraid of? Is something in this situation re-stimulating something, an experience that was old, that was negative, that is kind of, if I think about it, then I can kind of remember that maybe what I'm experiencing now is a re-stimulation of some old learning. Then we can use the smart top of our brains and sort it out and make decisions that are then where all of the levels of the mind are cooperating and, and, you know, listening to each other. Because viscera, visceral experiences and emotions need to be listened to. Sometimes people ignore core feelings in their bodies that they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. They override them. But it sounds like the next step would be to have a dialogue with that visceral response and figure out like what what's really happening. And this this makes me think of in in on the topic of having good sex, what does it do to us to have consistent non-pleasurable sex with a partner? Well, it's not consistent non-pleasurable sex is going to be very unreinforcing. Right. Like you wouldn't want to go back and have shitty sex. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and again, you know, this is always the opportunity. You know, one of the things that's shocked me, but not really with the Today poll that they did, they had um, asked women about all sorts of things, including their sexual well-being for this Maria Shriver's Women's History Month. That's what they did. 
46% of women said that they were not satisfied in the bedroom and were afraid to discuss it with their partners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I would say to somebody who's having sex that's not fun and not reinforcing, I'd be like, yay, let's have the conversation. Let's move into those scary, difficult conversations that if people learn how to have, they get more present, they get more connected, and they unleash what could be lifelong sexual potential. Because when you look at people who do have lifelong sexual potential, where they can continue to enjoy their being a sexual being, they have the ability to have these conversations with partners. And this is also what makes relationships sustainable, is taking the risk to have the uncomfortable conversation, whether it's about sex, whether it's about, you know, the relationship, whatever it is, to stay connected to the partner, feel our feelings, get upset, and get over it, and then clear the, the base for some fun. I mean, I obviously agree with you, and I, I think pleasure is a human right. And for the folks who are scared to have those conversations, what are the benefits of pleasure for, for the body, for the immune system? The benefits of pleasure is that when you are able to experience pleasure, life is worth living. And it's that fundamental. The ability to enjoy ourselves in and out of the bedroom makes us enjoy and value our lives more. We're better citizens. We're better friends. We're better parents. Our ability to have pleasure has been so maligned in our puritanical culture. We are so fucked up about that. You know, even now with the coronavirus, Trump is talking about getting back to work, getting back to work, you know, work, 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 money, work, work. Fundamentally, you know, our emotional and physical well-being hinges on our ability to connect. And connection is a great source of pleasure, connecting, you know, physically, being able to elicit care, getting curious and seeking pleasure. Pleasure is not a luxury. It's a necessity. And I kind of needed to know this because I come from a long line of very anxious people. I write introduction. <laughs> Are you and Jewish? You know I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish too. <laughs> And you know what? Jews may not be more anxious than other people, but they're more willing to talk about it. That might be true. <laughs> and, they're, and they're more willing to go to therapy about it. So the anxiety, even though we like to say, oh, Woody Allen, Jewish people are more anxiety. Well, it doesn't <laughs> help that, you know, culture, the groups of people that have been uh, persecuted and having to leave lots of countries mm -hmm. and all that, that doesn't help. But the, why well, I, I see it as like a genetic trauma, like intergenerational trauma too. It's intergenerational trauma. But guess what? Life is trauma. Everybody yeah. has trauma. We none of us get out alive, right? But to speak to this, you know, another thing I want to point out is that nature actually favored man to have a bad mood. Uh, the president, the past president of the American Psychological Association, Martin Seligman, talked about man as homo dysphorus, man with bad mood. The people that worried, 
they anticipated needing to put away food and they weren't lying there, you know, sniffing the daisies while saber-toothed tigers, tigers ate them. They survived. They survived, but there's too much of a good thing, you know. So 20% of the population roughly could be diagnosed as having a anxiety disorder. And I had panic attacks. In, in, I had my first in college. I wrote about it in my the introduction to my book. And what I've found is that the anhedonia, my, my challenge is relaxing and experiencing pleasure. Um, that taking that on and feeling entitled to pleasure from a culture where we are fucked up about pleasure, you know, because we're Puritans, and especially about, you know, we love sex, but we hate it. I call it lewd prude nation. So, you know, we have all of this, like, interest in sex, but meanwhile, you know, we still slut-shame women who have too much fun, and we talk about body counts when people have, you know, in a bad way for for females, Mm -hmm. and we also question whether women should have the right to their um, reproductive uh, choices. So, you know, this this is cultural, too. So anhedonia, the inability to have pleasure actually makes depression and anxiety worse as well as stress-related disorders and is a symptom of those. So it's like a negative cycle. So I have really done a lot of work on myself to like feel more entitled to pleasure in my life and prioritizing pleasure and seeking pleasure in and out of the bedroom. What's been most helpful for that, I think, because some of the feedback I'm getting from folks now, and even sometimes my own experience with this, is we go into survival mode. So whether that's now you can't pay your bills because you're not able to work, or you're worried about food, or you're worried about, you know, I'm also hearing from you that like pleasure is also a survival mechanism. But as opposed to before, I felt like it was two different things. It was like survival and then pleasure. But when you think about it, when you are relaxed and able to experience pleasure, also more creative, resourceful, and resilient. So to answer your question personally, I think what's helped me the most to tame my panic system so that I could relax enough to be able to have pleasure is working a lot with my breath and the floor of my pelvis and the bandhas from um Yoga, which I write about, and I give those tools in my book, mm-hmm. and I'm making uh, videos for people that'll be out on my website so people can do that training so that being able to harness the nervous system and build the strength of that calming purport, you know, component when you can calm yourself and then you can be more present, then you can then guide your attention in a way where you're more effective. The other big resource that I think changed my life really was studying Ericksonian hypnotherapy. And Ericksonian hypnotherapy is a kind of hypnotherapy that's really based on our language and how we talk to ourselves and what we suggest to ourselves. And boy, oh boy, we suggest a lot of stuff inadvertently that's not very positive. Mm -hmm. And the first kind of tenant of Ericksonian hypnotherapy is that we have all of the resources internally to create everybody and everything that we need externally. 
which to me is like the recipe, the operational definition for a secure attachment style. So we know that we don't have to have everything internally that we can depend on and enlist external resources and that when we cooperate with other people, we're going to have our needs met. When we think about that, and I'm telling people to do that too in light of the coronavirus, is that, you know, to really work with the breath. I have these outlined in my on my blog, how to work with the breath, and then to give ourselves that message that we have all of the resources that we need to create everything externally we need and want. And we can do that through cooperation with other people. And guess what? Most people are pretty darn good. If you watch the news, you forget about that. And it's all this negativity. But people are generally kind and, you know, we'll get through this. We will get through this crisis. This is not a bowl. It's not going to wipe out the whole planet. However, there are going to be a lot of people who get sick and a lot of people who die, especially if we don't cooperate by staying at home and sheltering. And you know, on the other side of this, when we're facing unemployment or not being able to pay our bills, there'll be a lot of us in the same sort of um, boat. And we'll figure out a way to reinvent ourselves, you know, and we can collaborate and connect and support each other. Connect, support, you know, friends and family. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, so I wish we could go on forever talking about all this stuff, but I want people to be able to do your trainings, to buy your books. Um, how can folks get in touch? Best way is to go to my website, com, and I'm going to have all sorts of um, uh, content available. There's content available there. Um, they can buy my book. They can read an excerpt from the book. They can read my blogs and my columns that I have out in Glamour and Psychology Today. And, and they can ask me questions. They can also book a free consult with me. So, they, you know, if they have any questions and they want to talk to me, they can book time for me to talk with them. And I'm also offering half price emergency sessions because of the coronavirus. So we'll do it. Not that this was like a personal free coaching session for me, but I feel like I got stuff out of it already. So book it. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure, Nicoletta. You're up to wonderful stuff and let keep in touch with me. Likewise, it was so nice talking to you again for listeners. If you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at sluts and scholars on Twitter at sluts scholars and feel free to email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me.